Welcome to the Lifted Podcast. My name is Scott McKean, and with me, as usual, is my co-host, co-pilot, Eric Ampman. Um, we are coming to you this morning from the basement studio at Homestead um, in the old Alberta Block building. Uh, this podcast is sponsored by End Poverty Edmonton. It is more than sponsored by, I guess it is. Uh, it is the reason we're here is Ed Poverty Edmonton. On today's um, podcast, we have a really special guest, um, someone I've known for, for years now. Um, Shalini uh, Sinha is the chair of the Anti-Racism Advisor Committee, uh, which is on hold right now. But uh, good morning, Shalini. Good morning. Good it's to great see- to be here. Thank you. And, and and so I know you from the Anti-Racism Advisory Committee. What have you been up to lately? Well, um, I suppose I have my day job, which is fun and excellent. So I'm a consultant around anti-racism, anti-oppressions, intersectionality. I love working with leaders who want to create some transformative change in their organization. So I love working on strategy, which always includes education might look at policy review and communications. Uh, I don't really care how small the step is that people want to take or where they're starting from, just that there's a will to create something different. So I think one of my favorite projects I worked on recently, I was the equity lead for the University of Utah's new climate change action plan. So they wanted to make this plan equity centered and really go to marginalized communities who are involved with the campus, around the campus, patients in their healthcare center and see how they can make climate change planning equity centered. So I got to work on that, really look at the connection between poverty and health outcomes and climate emergencies and help bring a voice of community to shape that plan. So it was really exciting. Loved that. Um, Where do we want to start here? Do you think we're doing anything to like, are we addressing racism or or is it just sort of changing its form? It's such a tricky question. I really reflect on this. You know, I feel that at this moment in Edmonton, myself and many others in Edmonton who experience racism are genuinely afraid to speak clearly and speak honestly about what the situation is. So that to me reflects or demonstrates the actual environment. Um, I, 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 here, here's the thing. Anti-racism or any challenge to systemic inequality is ultimately about one simple thing. Well, it's a clear thing. It may not feel simple. It's a clear thing. It's about rebalancing power. And power comes in the form of decision-making and resources. And so every time you're looking for an equitable move forward, it's about co-creating together with the partners together It's about centering the needs and the voices of the most marginalized and impacted. And then everyone who has the ability to work together to make responses in response to that. Right now, what do we have? We community brought a really effective, well-founded anti-racist strategy. It looks to me like that's being buried in favor of a report administration created called the Anti-Racism Community Safety 
well-being strategy, right? Um, If I look at the documents that were put out publicly right now in the process to create the anti-Black racism plan, if you look at the history that was put forward, they erased the anti-racism advisory committee, they erased the anti-racism strategy, they, they kind of indicated that that community safety and anti-racism strategy was the one that brought the pillars. If you look on their website, it's hard to find. You know, you'll find the, the city's executive report on anti-racism, but you have to go into resources and attachments to find the actual anti-racism strategy. So it looks to me like what was there as an incredibly effective plan that you know, some of us volunteers put 40, 60 hours a week into because we really believe this was a moment in time for Edmonton, an opportunity to change lives. And um, it, it just as the anti-racism committee has been paused, maybe because we're the keepers of that knowledge, we know who brought together that, we know what's in it. Uh, I feel like the anti-racism strategy has been paused. It's been put on hold. And something else is being formed where the administrative processes are at the center of creating that. That's what it looks like. So I, I, I won't put words in your mouth, but I, my theory is that we are not becoming a less racist community. Edmonton's not less racist than it was 20 years ago, but we're getting better at sort of changing policies. So our policies less racist, that it's not as overt. It's, it's a different form of racism. And I, I heard a really awful statistic this morning that I think reflects how that racism is playing out in systems. Uh, in 1999, Indigenous Canadians had a life expectancy that was seven years less than the average Canadian. Now it's 18 years less. That that's something really bad is happening. Or uh, the other one I heard this morning was that the average life expectancy for somebody who lives on the streets of Edmonton is 34 years, and we're allowing that to happen. And that's a very racialized community that is is living on our streets, and so. Like, I don't know what you can say about how we're responding, but I just don't see us becoming less racist. I think we're racism is playing out differently and we're quieter about it. We don't admit we're racist. And so we're allowing these things that are quite racist to happen, um, but we don't talk about it. I would add that we don't know what to do. I would think the establishment doesn't really know what to do. And so the easiest thing... When, you, when you're incompetent or feel incompetent at something, is to bury it, is to deny it, right? So, I mean, I don't know how... I've heard it's really bad out there. I was talking to one um, elder, very respected elder, Indigenous elder, and she was talking about how bad it is for Indigenous people trying to rent housing at Edmonton. I don't know if there's been a survey done, but I would take her at his at her word that it's really bad out there. Yeah, I would agree. For, so I'm I'm only back in Canada, back in Edmonton in the last four years, you know, and my experience. So I have quite a number of ways of assessing the environment that I'm in. And when people are frightened and they don't feel welcome to speak up, we know we're in a very oppressive moment. So I think we can understand what what does a healthy community look like? Is a healthy community one that can hear diverse voices, reach them, respect them, bring them into the community and allow the community to shape and form to meet everyone's needs? Or is it a healthy community when 
diverse voices are frightening and suppressed and, you know, there's lateral violence against each other and there's systemic violence to curb this. Which one defines a healthy society? So to me, we're not currently at a healthy moment here. And the thing that surprises me the most, I suppose, even though it shouldn't, is that people really don't understand how positive anti-racism is for everybody. So you will never hear me calling someone racist or calling something racist. This is what I wanted wanted to get you on, Shalini, is you have said to me that sort of all boats rise on the tide of Mm. anti-racism. Please explain that. Yeah. So listen, anti so racism is deeply connected to colonization. Racism as we know it as a global structure was created for the the endeavor of colonization and the agenda there, which goes back centuries. Like there's no single person today who was born today who decided on or planned that agenda. Not a single person, right? We're all living with the impacts of it. So the agenda that was there was to extract resources from land, from places, to take the resources. And in order to do that, you have to invalidate, genocide, move the people who there, who are there. And you're extracting those resources not to support everyone in that home colonizing community, but to hoard those resources and funnel them to a small few. That is the agenda. And so every time we are agreeing to that in society, we're agreeing to a society where people are poor, people are dying, people are, you know, under incredible pressure, and some people have more than others. So that's the society we're in. Now, that is fully against our humanity. There is no natural characteristic of our humanity that wants to harm people, separate from people, and feel like we're better than people. So the harm of racism has been handed down to every single human, no matter what your location. And when I talk about this, when I'm consulting, I also teach in gender studies at McEwen and I get to teach some of these concepts. I explain to people that when we talk about privilege, it's not human privileges, it's privileges in the current system. So it's people who have more access to resources and opportunities and decision-making and are allowed to speak more. That's the privilege we're talking about. They're not human privileges. Human privileges are connection, fear from judgment, safety, safe affection, support, food. You know, those are human privileges. My point is everyone is suffering. The system is, well, racism is systemic. And when we call someone out and say, you're racist, it's like we're we're giving the system a pass. We're saying somehow that individual was born into this society the way it is. Their parents were born into this society. Their grandparents were born in this society. And somehow it's your fault if you are a product of this society. And we make it individual. And we talk about monsters, bad people, and good people who somehow avoided all of this. None of it is true. None of it is true. So it drives me crazy. So I think everyone needs healing. Everyone needs healing from the trauma of this. And there are no good or bad people. We have to reconnect on our humanity. And I talk about a joy of anti-racism. If racism is painful and violent and harmful, anti-racism must be connecting and loving and affectionate. 
And it, it does mean we get to be side by side with each other in the human community. No one better, no one worse. That's how I see it. So uh, lovely. Well, and troubling in that, <laughs> like, there's a lot of things we do that seem so intuitive that we don't do. Like, if we can all benefit from something, why wouldn't you do that? And that's, in the poverty world, the, the really frustrating thing is we do a lot of self-harm. You know, we, we harm our community collectively. And I, I just, I can never get my head around why we do that. And I'm not asking you to answer it. I mean, yeah. not, not asking you to explain why, you know, humanity does some really funny things. But what I, what I want to do right now is find like hope. And so I'm going to ask you something about that, mm-hmm. which is like, where do you start? So as an individual, like what, what are the steps? What's the first step I should take if I want to be less racist or less oppressive or how do I make the world a better place? Yeah. I think a really lovely thing for every individual to do is to do kind of an assessment in the system where are our privileges and our marginalizations. And I think we will find that every single human, almost every human has some privileges in the system. We just don't notice them because the marginalizations cost us so much pain. And when we have marginalizations, we need to be acknowledged on them. So I think I think if we look at our own selves and realize how we're all kind of in this intersectional mess in here, it's the places where we have privileges that we ignore and we don't notice. And that's where we don't have relationships with people who are marginalized in that area. I'll give you a couple of examples that a lot of Canadians don't think about. Access to third level education is a privilege. This is a highly educated society. Most people have access to third level education, even though they may be experiencing to us LGBTQ oppression, disability oppression, racism. Recognizing you have a privilege and the, the way that separates you from other people is helpful. Um, learning a colonial language, this language, English, as a toddler or as your first language is a privilege. And not realizing the impact that that has on you, how much access to resources that gives you, makes you disconnect from people who have English as their second, third, fourth, fifth language, who have, you know, accents that demonstrate that English wasn't the language they learned as a toddler or as a child. So taking stock of our own identities will show us the areas where we need to unlearn stuff. You know, we're we're taught things, you know, that someone with an accent is dumber than us. And yet there's there's probably some statistical recognition that a lot of people with accents in this area are highly educated, you know, maybe with multiple graduate degrees, but we dismiss them, you know? Um, So I think the first thing we always have to do is start with ourselves and start to notice every time we were taught to think badly about a human and justify it, notice that was given to us on an agenda to divide and conquer and to hoard resources somewhere and break down Every single one. I, I feel like we can use the media a lot, watching stories that center people with marginalizations can help us see that humanity and get closer. But the goal is always to shed all of these false narratives we have taken in and, and get closer. And so then I think the next thing, the most important thing is build our relationships with each other. You know, I will say as a South Asian Indian, my people are from India on India, most of my extended family are still in the same place that my people are from. 
And through colonization, South Asians have been pitted against Africans. And for South Asians to not acknowledge that and to work to undo that, what is the real history? What false narratives were we given? What privileges did it give us? How did we act against our fellow humans? We continue to be part of the problem. South Asians who are born and raised in Africa, they may be claiming, listen, I'm African, but they were they were lifted up and put into Africa in a specific colonial place. And if we're not acknowledging it and breaking it down, we're disrupting our relationships with each other. Let's look at white Albertans. How many white Albertans came from a persecuted history in Europe? You know, we have Shakers, we have Quakers, we have Eastern Europeans who were persecuted on so many levels. We have Irish people who have come here persecuted on so many levels. And when as humans were persecuted and were traumatized and we don't realize the impact that that has, we can very easily turn around and act that against others. Very easily. So I feel like the racism that we have in Alberta is one that comes from a reaction of people who are historically traumatized. And, if, you know, if those people aren't able to look at their history, honestly, and see how then they came to slot in to take up a colonial role here against other people who were also persecuted against the indigenous people of this land, um, you know, that, that's where the work has to be done. So I always think the work is personal. Mm. And then it's community-based, it's relationships. And only after that, if we can get to partner with people who are making policy, that's what we do. But if they shut us out, we go back to community. I, the idea of privilege, I think would be, it would be really beneficial for, I think, us to, to have you talk a little bit more about that privilege. Because in, in, certainly in the circles I travel in, there's this, this desire to recognize privilege, but then be ashamed of it yeah. um, and not do something with it. Uh, and I, I, it would, I think it would benefit us to have you talk a little bit about that and expand sort of some of those ideas about what personally you can do and in community. Well, the other thing I would say is some people might be ashamed, but the other reaction is anger, I think. When people, I've seen it, when you talk about white privilege, people will claim to have not a racist bone in their body and how dare you. So that's the, <clears throat> excuse me, that's the reaction I kind of fear too is that losing losing the plot or losing allies so i think yes please uh please uh as eric asked talk about privilege in a way that that people don't have to feel ashamed which then i think leads to anger i think it's really helpful to understand the difference between a system that's functioning and humans there's a difference there and so again coming back to I am talking about privileges in a system, which do give people more resources, do give people more opportunities, more comfort. It turns out comfort is not actually the thing that's going to make our lives better, but gives people more comfort. Um, so those are privileges in a system. And I do think that every time you gain more privileges in a system, you lose connection in your humanity. You lose that. So look at, you know, when I was in Ireland, the, the, the class difference in experience was so much more stark than what you see here. Here, it's it's so clear, but it's veiled. It's like we're not seeing it very clearly. But in Ireland, you can see the difference between sizes of houses and sizes of walls, right? So the more money you get, the bigger house you get, the more isolated you are, the more gates and security systems you put up. 
what human aspires to live in that much fear, that much isolation? There was, this may be going a little off topic, but sometimes it helps people to look at a different oppression that they have some space around to understand. So when I was uh, in women's studies in Ireland, there was one of my colleagues did some research on women experiencing domestic violence across the classes. So in Canada, we might say across poverty and wealth. And was there a difference in the frequency of violence, the, the statistics of how much violence and the experience of violence? At the end of doing this research, she discovered that there was no difference in the enacting of violence, how much violence and population-wise, how much violence was in the different classes. There was only one difference in the experience. And the difference was that wealthy women were trapped in that relationship longer for decades and decades. And the reason they were trapped was they were more isolated. It was easier to hide what was happening. And they were scared that if they left, they would be denying their children resources that they had. Whereas poor women, because they weren't so isolated, other women in the community who saw this was happening eventually went in and got her out. And so it was the community that made the difference. So in terms of privilege, people, we can get very preoccupied with our salaries and our holidays and our cars and, and the comforts that we think we have. We don't notice what we're losing. I have yet to meet an owning class, middle class, a wealthy person who feels deeply happy in their life. You know, the happiness that we get as humans does not come from all that stuff. And by the way, the drive for all that stuff is ruining our planet, like totally ruining our planet. And so, yeah, so in terms of privileges, sorry, I, I, sorry, I'm going on in this for a long time, but in terms of privileges, it's privileges in the system. Let's look at another thing. Let's look at our white cisgender heterosexual man, right? Middle-class man. And, we, and a lot of people call it out and say, hey, you have so much privilege, right? So this person is conditioned to speak. Even we've noticed women talk about this. We're like, they don't even know what they're talking about or they don't have the answers. They don't know the directions, but they're still telling us, yeah. you know? So we've coined phrases and whatever. So they're conditioned to speak. They're conditioned to believe they should have the leadership roles. They're also conditioned to have to deal with violence and withstand violence. What human wants to do that, right? So they're gaining more privileges in their system. They're experiencing more disconnections. Our cisgender, heterosexual, white, man is not allowed to have the whole broad range of human affection and connection. This is all supposed to be focused on one romantic relationship. And so what do we see from these men? We see that their life expectancy is less. We see, um, you know, we see heart attacks. We see stress-related disorders. You know, we see isolation. Suicide. Yeah. So suicide's an interesting thing because it turns out that men don't attempt suicide as much as women do. Right. But the gender conditioning means that they attempt it in more violent ways. So men complete suicide much more often than women do. So women su survive suicide more, but they attempt it more. So it's, it's a little complex. Okay, so here's the thing. That man has access to so many privileges and is suffering in that position, is suffering. He'll feel his suffering 
And when someone challenges them and says, hey, you have all these privilege, he'll say, no, I'm suffering. Look at all the ways I'm suffering. And so we immediately go to our own victimized point of view. And yeah, all of us humans are victimized um, for sure in our lives. This is not an easy society to live in. So we need to stay on point with how do we dismantle the system that is not caring for all our people? And I have zero interest in any human feeling shame or guilt. Shame is, I mean, I know people are feeling deep emotions, but I feel like it's constructed. You're supposed to feel shame. And why are we supposed to feel shame? To be controlled. Once you're feeling shame, you're paralyzed. Shame is an awful, awful emotion. And it's internalized. You feel like there's something wrong with you. I feel like it's created and constructed so that people feel controlled. No human chose this. Not a single human chose this. And I, I would love to sit down with any human and show them how delighted I am that they are here and at the table. And let's see what we can do. Uh, of all the things you're doing, you're also writing a book. Please tell us what's going on. Yes. So... You know, it turns out that writing is my craft. It's my art form. It's my vessel for human creativity. And for quite some time, I felt kind of called to sit down. You know, I'm one of those people who has many chapter outlines and book titles and, you know. And um, so, I'm, so I'm writing my book, my contribution to the anti-racism conversation, you know, the title is The Joy of Anti-Racism. And it is about this tone and perspective of what does it really mean and look like to not have racism? Like, how do we work there? I, I know that just sounded so idealistic. It's not. But there is a conflict. I'm a human who believes that humans can reconnect and that there's reasons why we're so confused and so hurt and so struggling with this issue. So I do talk about those things, the cost of privilege, you know, really if racism is so painful and shameful and guilt-ridden, then anti-racism is connecting and loving and uplifting and all the ways where we get tripped up and all the ways that we can come out of it if we wanted to. Is your book written? It it's not written. I'm writing it. Okay. I'm when writing you, when it. When it's done, let us know when we'll... Okay. That's when we'll have you back. Okay. Yeah. We'll put some pressure on you. Great. And then we can plug it and whatnot. Yeah. Great. Great. Um, I think people can get in touch with me through my website. So I'm at www.beinclusive, B-E-I-N-C-L-U-S-I-V. Without that last E, because we're super cool. Shani, um, on behalf of uh, Ed Poverty Edmonton, Eric and I, thanks so much. Uh, it was fantastic to have you out. It was. Um, it'll be really interesting to see what you're, what you're doing next. And we want to have you back on the podcast sometime. Will you come? I will come. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed chatting with you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, I really love Shalini's message. Because I think as, a, as an old white guy, um, there's a certain amount of guilt people like me carry around with us and worry that we're going to be chastised and have fingers pointed at us. She does not do that. And I loved her quote, which uh, I have in front of me. 
I talk about the joy of anti-racism, says Shalini. If racism is painful and violent and harmful, anti-racism must be connecting and loving and affectionate. It means we get to live beside each other in a human community. So that means a lot to me. And I know End Poverty Edmonton itself has anti-racism as one of the game changers in the sort of um, founding of the organizations. Um, why? You'll, you'll hear me say this a lot about our game changers. Um, you, these are the things that we need to do as a community if we're going to end poverty. If you have racism in a community, you're going to have poverty in a community. And so us as a community need to address uh, the racism that exists, uh, both that really overt, but the subtle racism as well. And if we do that, there's only seven more things we need to do and you won't have poverty in Edmonton. So I was, uh, <clears throat> Eric, as you know, I was on the board of the Mennonite Center. And through that got to meet people from um, places all over the world who'd moved to Edmonton and, and got exposed to different cultures and people. The other, the other event that really strikes me is I was uh, crossing Churchill Square one night and there was breakdancing going on. Um, iHuman had sponsored this event and there's all these uh, young indigenous folks there and I just stopped to watch and suddenly the, one of them waved me in to talk and made me feel really welcome. And what I loved about that was it broke down my own barriers around feeling maybe a little awkward being an old white guy. But they were so kind to me. And I think maybe um, that's the challenge for all of us is to reach out across lines to racialized community and be kind and welcoming to them. Yeah, I, I think if you do make those connections, that's how you get at eliminating your own sort of potentially racist and biased feelings. Uh, you know, if you walk around downtown, a lot, there's a lot of indigenous stereotypes that are, that are reinforced. If you go to a powwow, there are none that are going to be enforced. And so that's the kinds of things I would hope that we try to expose ourselves more to. So at EMCN, we partnered with Bantero and brought a couple of busloads of uh, newcomers out to a powwow. And, you know, the next week I go to the daycare and there's a little uh, African girl do, do, imitating a jingle dance. And and her her feelings were very positive. Um, with Syrian refugees, we had Indigenous people drumming and well-picking them at our airport. And their views about indigenous people are much different than the, the same Syrians who arrived in Calgary mm. uh, because of the experiences they had. So exposure matters. Um, yeah, I, I don't think you can do more than challenge yourself to do that. So we should mention, Eric, that uh, Shalini is writing a book. Uh, I love the title, uh, The Joy of Anti-Racism. Um, we will have her back. When, when she's published that book. But for anybody listening to look further into her work, you can head to her website, www.beinclusive, without an E on the end, beinclusive.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>